Yeah, that's great. That's good. I know we struggle with that. Joshua was trying to carry the church over here earlier. And, uh, but anyway, good morning. And it is a privilege to be able to worship together and speak of Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and death that is um, seen in his resurrection from the dead. And this is good news, good news for us and good news for the world. And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 as we look at this good news proclaimed. For many of us, we grew up in a context where the Bible was assumed to be true. Where going to church was a part of our childhood. And to know someone who did not claim to be a Christian, well, that was just rare. For the most part, this kind of climate, this kind of environment of, of, of America... Um, churches could have evangelistic events that basically catered to that kind of culture. We could have evangelistic events, we called them revivals, and people actually wanted to go to a church or to a field in the middle of nowhere, in the hot with no AC, and listen to somebody preach for like a whole weekend. That was a draw card, believe it or not. There'd be prophecy conferences, and we'd preach to people who, by and large, were operating under the same basic value system that we shared, a Christian Judeo worldview. And this value system, basically, you talk to people, everyone believed that there is a God, and if you talked about being a sinner, everyone would say, oh, Absolutely. We believe that he has spoken in the Bible and that, uh, that I must follow him so as to escape from hell and to enjoy heaven. Everybody, by and large, held to that kind of basic morality, that kind of basic system of belief. And so maybe like me, you didn't necessarily believe those things until one point you finally said, you know what, I, I'm going to believe. And so kind of growing up in faith, maybe you had a, a season of life running off doing whatever and enjoying the pleasures of the world, but you, in the back of your head you had a guilt conscience that you were abandoning your faith and you came back to know Christ. Well, the world in which we live in today is quickly changing from that world. The world I gave, grew up in was vastly different than the world that some of you grew up. I didn't experience tent revivals. But I did experience, by and large, an upbringing by which I was commonly surrounded by Christians. The world in which we live is not that same world. According to a 2014 Pew Research study, 25% of millennials, and that is those of us born after 1980, identify themselves as non-religious. 25%. Overall, since 2007, those who would identify themselves as broadly Christian has dropped from 78% to 70. So just in seven years, 8% of the population no longer broadly, and I'm speaking very broadly Christian, would identify themselves as such. And really, there's no signs of that trend stopping. Other religions have increased up to 5%, with the rest with no religious affiliation at all. And so that means that in 2014, so that's two years ago, 
30% of Americans would not identify themselves as broadly Christian. And I can't imagine what the stats are going to say just two years later. It's like a compound effect. You get this boulder rolling, and it's like snow, and it starts off small, but it just continues to accumulate. I've experienced this change on a personal level just recently. Uh, speaking to a family uh, whose kid plays soccer with my daughter. This couple is recently, uh, most recently from Toronto, um, with the husband was raised in Pakistan and the wife in India. And getting to know them just a little bit, it, it became readily apparent that they had no idea what Christians believe. And the reason I, I knew that is because when they kind of asked me, so what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a pastor. They looked at me perplexed, and, they, and literally it was like, we've heard of such people. <laughs> but what do you do? I mean, it was, it, was, it was like I was talking about a foreign land. It had never been heard of. And just trying to explain, well, I, I get up and I, I open up the Bible. If, oh, yeah, we've heard of that. And I teach it. You get paid for that? I mean, that was the type of conversation that we were having. Brothers and sisters, we're going to encounter more and more people as our world becomes more eclectic and less Christian. And so the issue that's going to be for us is how do we share Christ with people who have no idea who He is? Because when I look at my own life... My parents could say, believe in Jesus. You're a sinner. Believe in him and you'll be saved. That, that made sense. But now we're, we're going to, by and large, be starting to talk to people that when you start talking about sin and you start talking about Jesus, and you start talking about a cross, what are you talking about? What, what is this stuff that you speak of? We've, we've heard of this Jesus, but I don't really get what the hoopla is all about. So how do we speak to people in this growing non-Christian, non-Christian culture that we're rising up into? Fortunately, the scriptures do not leave us alone. They uh, actually provide us with an example of how to do such ministry. And we we find ourselves with this example in Acts chapter 17. Um, In verses 16 through the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul finds himself in Athens, Greece, He's far from Jerusalem and the people who share his value system. He's in a foreign land. And by this time, Athens, though at one time was a glorious military empire, had been conquered by Rome. And it was now just another city within the Roman Empire. A city of a glorious past, but whose economy at this time was now struggling. Its its, uh, population was dwindling. Other cities such as Thessalonica and Corinth and and Rome were certainly thriving. They were the new and upcoming places to be. Nevertheless, Athens maintained its high reputation for being a center of intellectualism. It was the native city of Socrates and Plato, and the adopted home of Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. These were the philosophers renowned that many of you have studied in your schooling. It was the place of the intellectual elite. 
For us, it would be kind of likened to the Harvards or any other Ivy League school. For someone to say that they had studied there, you would automatically assume, well, then they must know what they're talking about. Or you might say, I've come across someone who is extremely intelligent. I wouldn't be surprised if they studied at Harvard. It was that kind of a place. Nevertheless, the city was a hotbed for idols. Even with all its education, as one commentator wrote, the supposed best and representatives of the Gentile culture had failed to elevate their concept of deity in a way that would affect the Athenian practice of religion. This was in a very um, educated city. This was the place where if you wanted to be a trained orator, you came from Athens. This is where men and women would debate philosophy and the intricacies of the universe. And they would not stoop themselves, at least the intellectual elite, to the, the, the idiocy of idolatry and pagan worship and, and temples. Yet still, as we see in this text in verse 16, Paul came to this city and it was full of idols. Despite the intellectual progress, the educational elite weren't, weren't able to change the tide of the popular people. Look at our culture. We are sophisticated. We are educated compared to the world. This is the place of land of opportunity. And yet, even with all the so-called progress that we have, we still are a world full of idols. Oh, we may not go to the temple and sacrifice a lamb, but no, we will go to the clinic and sacrifice our child. We will sacrifice friends and family to achieve whatever um, God that we want to please. In other words, Athens was a melting pot of ideas, both of pagan religion and the so-called best of philosophy. And this was the environment that Paul finds himself in. An environment much different than ours, but in many ways very similar to the world in which we find ourselves and so as we dive into this text this morning, I, I want to invite us just to, to look at how does Paul interact and look at him as a, an example, a model by which we can interact with those who do not know Christ, those who do not have a Christian upbringing, so that we may continue to see people changed and come to faith in the Savior. If you come to our text here, in beginning in verse 16, we see kind of the first element, and that is we must respond with urgency. And we see this with the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's waiting for, for Timothy and Silas, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So imagine this, Paul arrives in Athens, he's just gotten off the, the boat, and, and the entire city is filled with temples and statues and idols made of gold, silver, wood, stone. Have you ever been to uh, another country where um, there's polytheism? maybe a Hindu country or, or a, a Buddhist country, and you will see idols all over the place covered and plated in gold with, with flowers, with food, with candles, and, and, and it's just everywhere laying their sacrifices. This is the world that Paul walks into. 
And we see this interesting phrase that he was provoked within himself. His spirit was provoked. It's a word not commonly used in the New Testament. It's only used one other time, and it speaks of of not provoking someone to anger. But in the Old Testament, it's used quite frequently to speak of God being provoked by the idolatry of the Israelites. As they would steep into worshiping pagan gods, he was provoked to anger and, and judgment. And the Apostle Paul here is deeply disturbed. He's angered over the blasphemy that is all over the city. That people are being led astray by the worship of things that are not God's. Henry Martin, a 19th century Anglican missionary to India, while he was on the field, he was so disturbed by the imagery that he saw one night he had a dream. And in this dream, he saw a Hindu god at the foot, uh, uh, he saw a Hindu god, and at the foot of that god was Jesus bowing down to the Hindu god. And he said that excited more horror in me than I could ever express. He said, I was cut to the soul at that blasphemy. I could not endure existence if Jesus wasn't glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always thus dishonored. This is an example of probably what Paul was speaking of. Seeing these people worshiping false gods and it got within him that God would be the true God. Jesus Christ would be dishonored in such a way. Brothers and sisters, we don't live in a culture that's filled with pagan temples, at least around here. When I lived in California, right down from our church, there was a, 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 a Jewish synagogue, and then right next to the Jewish synagogue was the largest Buddhist temple in the uh, Western uh, Hemisphere. And every day you'd drive by and you'd see idols, and meat market, all the stuff you see Paul talking about. But by and large, most of us don't experience that. But make no mistake, America is full of idols. The idols of fame, the idols of fortune, the idols of self-expression, the idols of pleasure, the idols of power. You don't have to go to a temple to see these things um, elevated and expressed. All you have to do is you turn on your television. The temple is right there in your living room. Or you turn on your computer. And you watch the TV and the movies and the values that are expressed and the things that are celebrated, the, the words and the lyrics of, of certain songs and music. You see what's uh, promoted and celebrated on social media. Situation very similar to what Paul might have been in. You go to the university, those of you who are college students. The free expression of ideas. This is the place of progress and open-mindedness, and yet the same things go on there that happen in the rest of the world. You look at politics and business and you see the corruption of power and greed. All the progress that so-called we have made, yet you see the same things in these categories. So when you and I look at the idols of our country, does it provoke us? Are we moved? Are we stirred up? Does it break us? Do you see it for what it is and you see, man, that... That idolatry, that false notion, that lie that's being promoted in our culture is destroying lives. Does it begin to stir up in your soul 
Jesus must be made known. We must tell people. We must expose the error of people's ways and show them the truth. This is what Paul was experiencing. And this disruption of his soul led him to proclaim Christ, you see in verse 17. And as his habit, he, he, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So not only did he go to the synagogue, which he always did, but he also goes daily to the marketplace. It was not just a place where you would buy things, but it seemed to be a marketplace of ideas. And notice, he would talk with those who happened to be there. And, and, and of those were some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who also conversed with him. He's beginning to interact with people who are sophisticated. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I, I think of sharing Christ with people outside of kind of a Christian culture, think of atheists, I think of agnostics, I think of someone who's, who's very knowledgeable in the sciences, and, and you might be intimidated and say, well, I'm not going to have the answers. They're going to press me in ways that, that I don't know if I'm prepared to answer. They're going to have proofs and, 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 uh, and philosophy terms that I've never even heard of, and they're just going to work circles around me. Well, this is the kind of world that Paul finds himself in, and, and I want to encourage us that it's not as complicated as you might think. He comes and he interacts with what we see, two different philosophies, Epicureanism and Stoicism. You might have heard of these, but you might not know what in the world they mean. Epicureans was popularly known for its emphasis on attaining pleasure. This philosophy of understanding the world saw that the chief good was pleasure and pain was the chief evil. Therefore, what do you do? Good, pursue pleasure. Anything that causes you pain and discomfort, that's evil, so do that. You can see how that might be a popular worldview. So the aim of this philosophy was to be absolved from pain and trouble in the soul. They accepted the idea of gods. However, they weren't as, um, um, I guess, um, um, infantile in their thinking that, to, to think that Idols made of wood and gold and silver were real gods. They, they believed that the gods were the things that were up in the universe, but they were far, far away, and they had nothing to do with human dealings. In fact, they got this world started, but they have no care for what you do. In fact, there's no fear of the afterlife because they don't care what you're doing. We want to be in the place of perfectly heavenly bliss that they are in. And therefore, pursue pleasure. Stoicism was kind of different, though. Stoicism saw pleasure as a vice and highly valued uh, self-control. Furthermore, Stoics did not see the gods as distant, but rather personal and all around. They would, they would be close to what we might call pantheism. You might have heard that term. This is what pantheism means. That God, the divine being, is integrated in the entire universe. And so you see God and you interact with God in nature. And all the things that are, he is all in everything. It would be kind of like the equivalent of the force in Star Wars. He's everywhere. And if you can just tap into him, you can use him to help you attain whatever good that you're trying to achieve. Therefore, when Paul would be preaching and sharing Jesus, this was, these were the two dominant worldviews or ideas or philosophies that would be amongst many of the people of this time. 
This was the presuppositions that they had. They either thought the gods were like the Epicureans thought they were or like the Stoics thought they were. And so this means that when Paul came, he had to speak in such a way to be very careful to explain things. He couldn't just use the Christian lingo, the Christian jargon, and assume that they would understand what he meant. And I don't want you to see this. Look in verse 19, or the end of 18. So he's interacting with these philosophers, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Already he's got an uphill battle. They think he's just a babbler. You know what a babbler is? This term means it's someone who who picks up ideas from random people, and he just kind of collects them and makes them his own, but presents them in such a way that he thought of them himself. It's the person who comes around and talks like he knows what he's talking about, and everybody knows this guy's an idiot. This guy doesn't have a clue. He's trying to fool us, but we're not going to, to buy into it. Call him a babbler. He was a second-rate journalist, if you might call it. What is this one? He's not educated. He's not trained like we are. What does he wish to say? But others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. You can already see, we've heard of pastors. We've heard of such things. It sounds like he's talking about divinities. And Luke makes this comment because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, what were they understanding? Notice that foreign deities is in the plural. However, Jesus or Paul was preaching, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, they were interpreting this as multiple gods. And probably they understood Paul to be talking about Jesus as a divine being and the resurrection which in Greek is Anastasis, sounds like a name, sounds like a goddess. We think, yeah, Jesus' resurrection, they are like peanut butter and jelly. They just go together. But when Paul's coming together in here, they're thinking, what divinity is Anastasis? Is goddess? Who's this Jesus? And they say that these things are, are strange. They go on, verse 20, you bring some strange things to our ears. And we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And so they lead him to what is called the Areopagus. This is the council of Athens. This is the courtroom. And they would come and they said, we want to bring you in. You're talking about things we have never heard before. And really, this is going to be an interrogation for Paul. Are you bringing in some foreign idea that's going to cause us trouble? We want to hear what you're talking about. This is crazy talk. So this is the kind of place Paul is at. And as he's preaching the gospel, we're we're saying that it's just not landing on ears. It's not like when he goes to the Jews in the synagogue. He says, hey, let's open up the Bible and let me show you that Jesus is the Christ. We're not even at Bible yet. And so as we think about, as we seek to share Christ, we need to think about when we're sharing the gospel, what Strange things might that sound like when it lands on their ears. I recently heard about a student who was interviewing with their family to go to a private school here in the Louisville area. And one of the questions for the student was, um, how did Jesus die? And the student said, I think he was shot. Really? I mean, you would think that's just easy. 
And I'm not saying it represents every student. It's, but it's just showing you this isn't common knowledge for everybody. People have heard of them and don't, can't distinguish Jesus from God, Gandhi and Muhammad and the Dalai Lama. They don't know who he is. They just heard of him. Which means we have to preach Christ in such a way that people can understand. And so this means, and we're going to see how Paul does it, that, that we got to, when we talk about sin, you know what people hear when they hear sin? They hear mistake. Like, yeah, yeah, we all make mistakes. It's not a big deal. Or we, we talk about faith. That, that might, you know, a superstition, an optimism, a hope that's really not founded on any truth. You speak of, of the cross. It doesn't land on people's ears like it lands on ours. Like, okay, a cross, wood, what, what, what are you talking about? Does this mean then we stop saying these things? No. But it means we're careful in what, we, what language we use to explain them to the world. And we see this as Paul goes on in verse 22. And this leads us, what we've seen, first we must have an urgency. We must see their brokenness. It must provoke us. We must understand how distant people are. They do not necessarily know who God is. But we need to identify some commonality. We need to make bridges. And this is exactly what Paul does beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So this is how religious or yeah, this is how religious Athens was. They had so many idols that they were even covering their tails by having an idol to the unknown God. There was kind of an optimistic agnosticism. I don't know if there's a God out there. Maybe there's one we've missed, but let's give him offerings as well just in case we missed one. It's kind of the idea, maybe this is some of you, hey, I'm not so convinced about this Christianity deal, but I show up to church just in case. It's that kind of mentality. And Paul comes and he says, I notice, hey, you know, you're very religious. And I've noticed that there's this idol and this altar that people, uh, the unknown God. And they go, yes, that's right. Yeah, we've covered our basis. We've covered our tracks. We're, we're very religious and we're very tolerant of all ideas. Even though we're, we're sophisticated on this council and we don't necessarily think those things are real. But yet our culture goes after them. Paul says here, I want to make known to you this unknown God. This that you worship in ignorance, I make known to you. And I want you to think about this. As we're seeking to share Christ with people in our culture, like Paul, he's, he's looked at their culture and he's understanding an opening. Here's an area that I can come in and I can show that you recognize a weakness, something that you're, you're unaware of. And yet I can bring some information too. How do we do this in, in our day? We don't walk around Jeffersonville and find the idol to an unknown God. But it can go like this. You just listen to what people in our culture talk about. Being a good listener to people. You know, that's, that's what I've, I've been trying to do with this one couple. Just trying to understand, now how did you all meet? You're in Pakistan, you're in India. Like, what in the world would take you to Toronto? And, and what, you know, what, what are you trying to do? 
And you begin to learn just a little bit more about them and what their hopes and dreams and aspirations are. And you know what you find out? People want justice in the world. They want rights. They want love, companionship, joy, happiness, purpose. I mean, that's across the board. Whatever religion you're talking about or philosophy, even agnosticism, atheism, they want these things. And they express them through their worldview, trying to attain them. And if you listen hard enough, you could say, well, let me tell you about the God you don't know. That's what Paul is trying to do. And so this is where we move into now. We've got to explain the Christian worldview. Worldview, if you don't know what that is, it's the lenses by which you see the world. It's the way you make sense of the world around you. Everybody has a worldview, whether you realize it or not. And really, you can think of your worldview by answering four questions. Who is God? So even if you're an atheist, you'd say there is no God. Who is man? What's the problem in the world? And then what's the solution? However you answer those questions, that's just kind of a basic way of formulating, is going to determine the way you live your life and the value system that you have. And what we want to do is we want to sit down with people and say, well, let me tell you about this other worldview. Let me share with you what I believe. And it actually comes from this book called the Bible. So this, I'm just regurgitating what has been handed down to me. This isn't my own opinion. And what we see is that Paul, he doesn't open up the scriptures, but he's clearly operating on the truth of the Bible. And he begins by emphasizing where we need to do this with our culture, that God is the creator of heaven and earth. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul begins with the Creator. The true God, the God you do not know, the one that you're trying, who can provide all the things your deepest longings are, that you're pursuing in different ways, he is actually your creator. This world in which we live, he is the maker of it all. And really what Paul is doing here, and I don't have time to unpack all this, but he is working the philosophies of Epicureanism and Stoicism. In some sense, they'd be like, yeah, you're right. God does not dwell in temples. But in some sense, he'd be saying, but God isn't the creation. He is the creator. He is combating their ideas. Some sense, hey, you, you understand some things. Other ways, you don't. He doesn't dwell in temples. This would have conflicted with really the masses. And notice what he says here about God being the creator and not being living in temples that are made by man. Here's the idea. God is not defined by us. It's the other way around. And you can see our world, that is so applicable. Well, this is what my God does. Or my God wouldn't do that. Or my God would do this. And what we need to be telling our culture is that God is not made by human hands. It's the other way around. And he declares, as as Jim read from Isaiah, who he is. I am God and there is no other. 
And we need to clearly communicate that to a lost world. Oh, you might think that you can serve him, that you can do things for him. He's not served by human hands, Paul says. Obviously, this is the idea of serving him with sacrifices. But maybe you're here today and you think, hey, I got to come to church. I got to work. I got to do, do, do to serve God to be acceptable to him. I've got to do these things. I have to go through the priest. I have to go do this or that. Or I've got to make sacrifice. I've got to do this or that. And then I will be serving God and then he'll be pleased. But here is the truth. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. This is a shot to our pride. Do you know that God doesn't need any of us? He doesn't need us. In fact, he serves us in a way. He gives it to all mankind life and breath. You know the air we're breathing right now? He gives that to you. The food that you eat, the clothing on your back, the house that you have, the world that is sustained where the sun comes up, goes down, the, the tides, the seasons. He sustains this world and we need to tell people about him. This is the heart of the gospel. We cannot earn our favor with him. Rather, he has condescended to us in his son. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the God we proclaim. And it's a vastly different God than the world has assumed and fashioned in their minds. He's a creator of humanity. Go on, verse 26. This means that we have created, we were created with purpose. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live. He doesn't say Adam. He's not going to get in that debate right now. So you don't have to worry. You don't have to go on dealing with all evolutionism and, and take him to the new ark in, in northern Kentucky. You don't have to do all that. You don't have to get in that conversation. I'm not saying those things are bad. Just in this initial, just he created all humanity from one man. And every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, meaning all nations and peoples, God is sovereign over them. He determines their time. How long this nation's going to last, what their boundaries are, where they may dwell. It's very interesting, the play on words here. God does not dwell in temples made by man, but man dwells in places made by God. You see the difference? This is the God we proclaim to the world. A God who is not fashioned by man. But why did he create the world in such a way? Look, verse 27. That they would seek God. And perhaps, and here you see the, really the sinfulness of man. If perhaps feel their way toward him and find him... Uh, the idea is someone groping and looking in the dark and they accidentally stumble upon God. God created this world in which he might be known, but yet because of our sinfulness and the darkness of our hearts, we've been blinded. But yet there's a glimpse of us being made in the image of God by which in some ways we understand things about God. In other ways, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I want you to see this. If you go over just one more book of the Bible to the book of Romans, 
In Acts, Paul's kind of more on the optimistic side. This world is created in such a way that the heavens declare the glory of God, that we may find him, that we may see him. He has created the world and created us so that we'd have longings that would drive us to recognize that we need God. We see this in our need of sleep, food. We suffer sickness and death, and we realize that we are mortal beings. We, we need relationships, friendships, family, a spouse. We long for justice, peace, the elimination of evil. We look at the order of the seasons, the universe, and the complexity of life, and everything is screaming to us that we are dependent creatures and we are in need of someone else. And if sin wasn't involved, we would see and know God. But look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Meaning the truth in the creation is just right there. R.C. Sproul uses this analogy. that The truth of the universe is right before our face. And it's like a giant spring by which humanity suppresses it and pushes it down. And when they let go for just a moment to do something else, it springs right back up in their face. They say, no, no, stay down. And they're constantly pushing it away. Paul goes on, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. What does he mean? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Have you ever been caught in the current of, 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 of a river or the ocean? You feel the power? You just realize you're helpless? Or maybe you've been on a plane and you look up from high like a bird soaring and you realize, wow, how small I really am. You realize you're not the king of the world. There's someone else. In these things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise Epicureans and Stoics, philosophers of the day, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They make God like them. We do the very same thing. And what God, or Paul is telling them is that you were created for something greater. That's what we want to tell the world. Your deepest longings are actually remnants of you being made in the image of God that are drawing you to recognize you need someone else, and I want you to know that we proclaim this unknown God to you, the God that you've suppressed. And what do we say? Well, look at verse 29. Actually, back up, verse 27. He says, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. That's against the Epicureans. He said, the gods are disinterested. And Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. The Stoics have been like, yeah, God is near. But he's not the creation. He's the creator. And he says, even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. We're his creation. And so what does this mean, verse 29? Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the imagination of man. He says, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in, unrighteous, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He comes down and he talks about Jesus. We're his creation. He's the Lord. He's the master. We must submit to him. And he is coming to judge those who do not bow the knee. And how do you know he's going to do this? Because he raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus is going to be the one to come back. And he's going to judge the world. And you might be saying, hey, Chase, that's all in good. But you, you start telling people that, they're going to be like, that, that, you don't understand evolution. You don't understand this. You don't understand that. Blah, 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 blah. That's exactly what would have been happening here. That's exactly what some people do say. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, oh, you're not talking about some goddess. You actually believe people will rise from the dead? We know that doesn't happen. And they, they mocked him. <laughs> Whatever, we're done with this babbler. Get him out of here. This guy's an idiot. But others, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from his midst, from their midst, and look what happened. And some men joined him and believed. Now the picture is they're before a council. Some of them on the council are mocking him. I'll get this guy out of here. Others are like, oh, I want to hear this again. This is interesting. And as Paul walks out the door, some of them walk out with him. Among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite. He's one of the council members. And a woman named Damaris. We don't know much about her at all besides this. She probably was someone influential in the city. And, and so as someone's reading this and knows of Damaris, oh, this is the story by which she was converted. And others with them. At the end of the day, we leave the results up to God. We preach Christ. We try to make it as ex understandable as possible. We tell them the truth, and then we, we leave the results to the Lord. And the good news is that some, some will believe. Yes, we'll be mocked. Yes, we'll be ridiculed. You're going to be a babbler. You're going to be a fool who actually believes that people are raised from the dead. But what we know is that we have truth on our side. And we know that we have the Holy Spirit who, like the wind, blows as He wishes. And as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. How does this happen? Well, the Spirit blows where He wishes. And we call people to believe. And if the Spirit is moving, they will. That's, that's it. <laughs> that's, that's our job. We're like the waiter who receives the meal out of the, out of the kitchen. And we just need to make, bring it to the table. It's not our job to make sure they like it. We just get the order and bring it to them the way God or the chef prepared it. All right, let's pray. We'll sing a closing song, and, and then we're going to send off our students to camp. Where you're going to hear awesome things about this glorious God and have some fun too. All right?